Welcome to the Weekly Squeak, your weekly geeky squeak with me, as always, Christian Giller. How is everybody? It's certainly becoming another time when I have to ask that question a lot. I think we're all about on the edge of not being okay so much. Anyway, let's move along. Um, I have an interview this week with Lyndon Tibbetts of IFT, If This Then That, kind of um, early, early arrival, I guess, in the sort of automation space. And I'm having a chat to him about uh, some of their recent product changes and the origins of the company and how they're keeping up in a sea of competitors. That was an interesting interview. And I love his uh, background, the room is in, you'll see it's a very sort of almost perfect shot he had the whole time. (laughs) I have just a couple of links to share with you before that. I've been kind of busy uh, with a lot of other things. I've actually had a lot of interviews uh, I've been doing, so you can look forward to those very soon. I've also been doing some uh, work for some other people. Some of that you will see soon. Some uh, new videos, new blog posts, all in progress that should be around in the next week or so. So that's what's been keeping me busy. But I have a few other things to tell you about after my links. But with that said, let's get to my links for the week. All right. So anyone who knows me knows that um, I have spent a long time in uh, content content management systems. Used to do a lot with uh, with uh, with content management systems. I just said that. <laughs> uh, and what you see is what you get. Type editors figuring out how to get those to work and things like that. I was always very much into sort of rich text editing. Then I discovered Markdown and never really looked back. Uh, and a lot of people in, in, in my space, in the space we operate in, know Markdown. But there was a really nice post here from the Capiche blog. Capiche. That's uh, a, a magazine. I'm not 100% sure. But from, um, what's the actual person's name? There's just says by... Magulai. I'm guessing that's not their full name, but that will do. Anyway, the history of Markdown. Uh, and it's actually it's a lovely post. It talks about how people used to casually in content uh, mark out what they meant and mark out emphasis with asterisks and underlines and dashes and things in email. And then that slowly became kind of a standard, even though it was never defined that way, which led to people trying to Define standards like ATX, and I've read this in other pieces somewhere, um, and also sort of led into the aspects of uh, HTML markup and uh, XHTML markup um, as an option, and then textile, uh, and then these kind of all led to John Gruber and Aaron Schwartz talking about Markdown and this becoming, for some reason kind of an actual formalization of that formatting into a rendering agent as well. And of course, a lot of people criticize that Markdown has no real standard. And there's an interesting quote in here from John Gruber. um, And he's mentioned this a few times that that was kind of the point that people can do it in different ways. Uh, And this has its positives and negatives, of course, as anyone who's ever used Markdown knows. And you can always just interject uh, inline HTML if you need anything more and things like that. Um, But this is a wonderful post if Markdown interests you in the slightest. And I mean, what it doesn't really cover is um, why it became so popular. Um, It became popular quite quickly. I'm not really sure why. So, so, uh, yeah, these things sometimes just happen. But have a read of that. And, uh, yeah, I would be 
quite fascinating to know your feedback. My second link for the week, my only one. Um, interestingly, it's from MIT Technology Review uh, by Ryan Abbott, and it's saying for subscribers only, but I read it somehow. I don't think I'm a subscriber. Anyway, if you are, <laughs> or if you're not, then um, it's actually an excerpt from a report called The Reasonable Robot, Artificial Intelligence and the Law. And uh, this is a, an interesting post about uh, rethinking the legal treatment of robots for a wide variety of reasons, some of which you may not um, expect. Um, and that robots don't actually have the same requirements as us and things like that. And I guess the flip side of that, of the effect it has on humans, you know, it's probably the thing that needs legalizing more. Because, um, and this is, I was reading this also in the IEEE magazine uh, last month about how robots are being more used this year for obvious reasons. Um, kind of replacing jobs that humans don't want to do, but don't necessarily want to lose. Uh, and will this year be an acceleration point and a point of no return? Or will that come back when the humans are ready to come back to them? This sort of thing. Um, and yeah, kind of neutrality around the law. Um, and there's been this increasing focus, which I found quite interesting on this um, explainability and transparency of AI rather than the regulation of regulating that it should be transparent, not necessarily saying what is right or wrong. Yeah, <laughs> it's a big topic. Uh, if you can read that article, then do. And if you can find the report, then do. So that was my just very, very brief uh, roundup of links for the week. Things quite different from each other. I'll have some more over the coming weeks, but I just wanted to focus on uh, some other things this week. So now is my interview with Lyndon Tibbetts, where we talk about IFT and the past, present and future of the company. Enjoy. Hi there, I'm Lyndon Tibbetts, uh, co-founder and CEO of IFT, uh, otherwise known as If This and That. I'm originally from a small town south of Dallas called Duncanville, Texas. Uh, I've been out here in the Bay Area, uh, San Francisco, for about 20-some-odd years now. I uh, live here with my wife and uh, young daughter in North Beach. So that was going to be one of my first questions. I remembered the if, the if this, then that, but you haven't really used that in the name for some time. And then my first thing was going to be, how do you pronounce it? Just in case I was assuming wrong, but. <laughs> yeah, yeah, well, we say, we say if, so kind of like a gift without the G, um, but we, we, we don't get too upset when somebody pronounces it differently or says IFTTT. Uh, IFTTT. We've, got, we've got three T's in the name. So uh, uh, a little bit of confusion on pronunciation is to be expected, but it's really worked out well for us. Largely, largely because it's very unique. You see it. Yeah. You actually probably read a lot more than you talk nowadays. Uh, I don't know if that's a good or bad state of affairs, but it really stands out. All caps. It kind of uh, yeah. sticks out in a, in a lump of text. I mean, actually, the, the graphic design of what you do is, is something else, which maybe we'll come to in a minute because it's, sure. it's kind of interesting in itself. But um, so if there's a company in this, in its in its space is pretty well known. But just for people who do not know what space we're talking about, what is IFT? What What are you trying to do when you reach for it? Sure. Uh, well, uh, the most general possible statement is uh, we believe everything works better together. What that means is our lives are just continuously 
adding new internet services. Everything around you, whether it's a physical product, a brand, or your home insurance, uh, is either already or in the process of becoming an internet service. Mm -hmm. And that can create a whole lot of confusion uh, if those don't all work well together. And so what IF does is help individuals and the brands themselves create connections between services uh, to extend the value or functionality of what those services could do if they were to stand alone. Uh, so, you know, simple examples would be uh, if you've got like a connected doorbell and a, a light uh, uh, on your porch into your way, uh, if somebody rings your doorbell, uh, then turn on the light. Uh, to, to greet them. Or maybe it's even better. It's got a motion sensor. So you turn on the light before they even uh, arrive. And so that, you know, that's that if this and that kind of formula, if you will. But, you know, over the over the years, we've now gone beyond that. Uh, and for brands and now what we call pro or kind of mm-hmm. uh, uh, more kind of power users, uh, you can create integrations that really look like any type of integration you could build uh, with just an API today. Mm-hmm. So, again, in in this sort of connecting things together, and I mean, um, I'm mostly talking to developer audience, so we can talk about APIs. That's generally what is happening there, APIs and and webhooks and things like that. Um, It feels like IFT has been around for some time, but technology years are not always the same as normal years. So how long has it actually been around for? Yeah, so, um, you know, we, we officially launched December 2010. Uh, and I okay. worked on it for a couple of years prior to that. So uh, you can kind of start your clock in anywhere around there. So coming up to 10 years. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> okay. And yeah, let's, let's actually talk about this graphic design. I mean, it's, it's interesting because in this space, there's now a lot of competitors, which maybe we'll come to in a minute, but you've always gone for this very, very clear, large, um, sort of obvious isn't really the best word, but just kind of just very in-your-face design Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. that tries to abstract the fact there's APIs and and parameters and all these sorts of things behind the scenes. But was that a conscious effort that you really wanted to make this that, you know, a developer could do this themselves if they wanted to, but you wanted to really aim at people who weren't that or, or... was there a design behind that? Oh, yeah. And in fact, uh, you be careful, Chris, because I could talk about this for the, the entire show. Um, you know, my, not my background before if, and maybe we'll get into kind of the, the story of how it yeah. began uh, in a separate question. But, um, you know, I was a, a developer, engineer uh, that desperately wanted to be a designer. Um, and, uh, you know, I, I, I've never been, a, a designer full on, uh, other than a couple of years, I worked at a design firm idea where I kind of made that transition. Yep. Um, and I think a lot of those kind of early, uh, inspirations, uh, behind, uh, the visual design of IFT, uh, really came from, uh, this idea of how do you make something more approachable, uh, and more accessible to a much broader audience, and, you know, people like to talk about simplicity and, you know, there's all kinds of kind of words that uh, have almost been used so often that they've lost meaning. Um, but, you know, I think very specifically uh, what we were going for was really trying to help people that weren't programmers, weren't engineers uh, do things that was really only 
the domain of engineers up until that point. And so one of the things that we were really conscious of was uh, even with, with a name, if this and that, uh, you know, uh, it, it can already sounds a little bit like programming, uh, which is on purpose. Uh, but you're, you know, the, the first second that you interact with it, it needs to feel like something anybody can do. Uh, and uh, I don't think this is a perfect example, but I, I've used this before. Uh, when you think about um, like children's toys, uh, Lincoln Logs or even Legos to some extent, uh, there's kind of an obviousness to them. Uh, they're very kind of tactile, visual. They're often oversized, you know, larger. You know, some of that's because children have smaller hands, but they 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 make it feel very approachable. Um, uh, you know, this piece fits here, and maybe you can fit that piece a couple different ways. So there's all kinds of creativity, um, but you're never like left guessing. Okay, how do I fit these things together? Uh, it, it's very obvious. Uh, that, you know, the actual incremental work that you have to do to, to make things kind of fit together. Uh, and then the creativity and all the effort is really in, okay, well, what do you build with this uh, once you kind of know how that works? So again, I could talk about this forever, but that was definitely the intention. Uh, one of the reasons everything was so big, the rest of the web actually kind of caught up. I don't think we would claim to be pioneers in any way for any of this stuff. Uh, but, you know, we when we launched, like all the buttons were like twice as big as anything else out there. The font and text was like really, really big. And all of that was to kind of make it feel like, oh, wow, this should be really easy. OK, so, I mean, you already alluded to it a little bit, but out of the myriad of things that IFT can now connect to when you first started creating this, what were you trying to connect yeah. So um, funny enough, a lot of the inspiration uh, came from the work I was doing, uh, was building uh, either kind of different prototypes uh, for different kind of, uh, you know, kind of client led projects at IDEO or uh, connecting a lot of the internal systems there mm -hmm. within the firm. Uh, and so much of what I was doing was essentially just, you know, connecting APIs. And uh, I realized that there was so much happening, especially if you if you think back to like the, you know, 2006 to 2007, 2008, somewhere in there was the iPhone uh, and, you know, everything that happened after that. Uh, there was this explosion in consumer uh, Internet, uh, kind of like the, the, the birth time or birth period of things like Twitter and Facebook and all mm -hmm. those things. Were, um, uh, and it just became clear that uh, not only businesses, but consumers uh, we're going to be faced with managing lots and lots of different, very kind of purpose-driven pieces of software. Uh, and because of the internet and the way that the browser worked at the time, uh, they weren't set up to work well together. It wasn't very easy to connect the dots between them. Um, and uh, there were a lot of uh, developers out there figuring this out. It was kind of the golden age of open APIs. Mm -hmm. uh, if you will. Um, uh, and developers were kind of building these things, you know, people call them mashups and stuff like that. Uh, and I was building some of those things too. Uh, and it was just so obvious that, wow, this, this isn't something that just developers should be able to do. Um, and, you know, the one last thing I'll say is, you know, some of that inspiration actually came from the creativity that everybody kind of takes for granted in their physical world. Anytime you put on an outfit, decide what to put in your suitcase if you're going out of town, uh, you know, probably hundreds of times per day, 
you're rearranging or reorganizing or even repurposing physical objects in a really creative way that if you kind of broaden the spectrum wide enough, it's the same thing as programming, or Mm -hmm. at least the same thing as kind of connecting APIs. And so everybody is capable of thinking about how things can work better together. Uh, But unless they're an engineer, they're not capable of actually doing that in the digital world. And, And that was a problem we wanted to solve. I think I forgot about the whole mashup scene, actually. That was a term yeah, I yeah. forgot about. <laughs> yeah, mashups. <laughs> and I guess that's where, um, was it the, I think they've now been taken over by someone else, but that I guess that's where mashery got their name from, I suppose. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, and, I mean, when, when did you think that this could be more than just you solving your problem to something other people might want to do? Well, I mean, it, honestly, it kind of started a little bit like an art project. I was doing these little kind of one-off visualization art projects, just kind of things for fun. Um, and, uh, it, you know, this was all before it launched, so it didn't launch as an art project. But it, it became really clear that um, there was something kind of fundamental about it. Uh, you know, this idea of, of, of services connecting uh, and people kind of managing how those connections work. Uh, And I began to even kind of think much further into the future uh, about, you know, uh, you know, future interfaces, you know, and, and, you know, things like voice kind of happened over the last 10 years, or at least it it has happened in a a much more legit way, closer to what we always kind of dreamed of or kind of portrayed in science fiction, Um, you know, AI, quote unquote. Um, uh, But but I think uh, even things like AR, glasses, like any of the future interfaces um, uh, that we can kind of dream up today, almost all of them have the singular thing in common, which is they have much less kind of pixel-based interactive surface area. Uh, they're, they're you know kind of more in the background, or at least they have the potential to be more in the background. And it became clear that any, you know, kind of actual workable implementation of these future UIs uh, we're going to be much more heavily based on APIs than they were, you know, user interfaces, UIs. A lot of eyes in here, um, uh, and it just it, there's just something that became so exciting to me about that uh, that there was really a, a potential to think about kind of a future computing platform that wasn't just based around one specific device, like you think of iOS or Windows is today. Uh, but that could instead be based on all the different types of services an individual user might bring into their world. And each one of those users, uh, unless everything became Amazon or Google or Apple, uh, each one of those users was going to have a very unique set of things, you know, just as unique as the furniture in your house or apartment, you know. Uh, yeah. And so uh, that, there was just this huge opportunity to build a business if you could figure out how to turn all of those disparate services into a singular programmable platform. It's interesting you say this because now saying that a service or a platform is API-based so you can meet various um, outputs and different um, uh, media delivery and things like that is, is almost it's kind of expected. Mm-hmm. But 10 years ago, doing that, it seemed a good idea, but it wasn't so obvious. <laughs> yeah. Um, 
so firstly, I mean, that was quite forward thinking, but I imagine at the time trying to connect services together to make the applets was, was it possibly challenging? Did you often find that there was a services you wanted to connect together, but they were still very different from each other and not necessarily that standard from each other? Or has it always been like that and we just didn't realize? <laughs> did, yeah. Yeah, did, you, did, you, yeah, did you find it difficult to get things to communicate with each other in the earlier days? Oh, of course. I, it still is. Uh, it's yeah, really sure. kind of the, the reason we're still around uh, uh, because it's a really, really big problem. Um, and, uh, you know, part of it's rooted in the fact that, you know, no two services are are the same uh, uh, as much as, it, you know, it's so easy to kind of copy and paste your way to something that's very similar. Mm. Uh, there's always these little differences. And when you go to express that, in an interface like an API or like a, a UI, um, a lot of those differences come through. And, um, you know, even I think, I think about services that you, you think on the surface are really similar uh, that we have on it. Like we support, I mm -hmm. think, almost all the, the cloud drive services, Dropbox, yeah. Google Drive, Amazon Drive, uh, Microsoft, it's called OneDrive or SkyDrive. Um, you know, okay, well, these all must be really similar, but they're <laughs> radically different uh, once you get into the details uh, uh, of the way that that service is expressed in terms of an API. And so I, I actually think that difference is good. You know, it's, it's almost there's uh, something very altruistic. It's kind of like uh, individual expression. Uh, and who's to say that, you know, you know Dropbox uh, uh, figured out the best way to do it? You know, my guess is none of those cloud drive services have yet landed on the ideal expression mm. of what a cloud drive service should be, uh, those are going to continue to evolve. Uh, and so uh, you almost have to think about, well, how do you almost encourage this kind of diversity or, uh, you know, a thousand blooming unique flowers, but also make it manageable, uh, make it uh, such that those could still work together, that they were still compatible in some way. Uh, even though they were allowed to evolve in very unique directions. And, and behind the scenes, as much as you want to go into, like, do you end up, does the company end up creating like standard interfaces for these standard interfaces, if, if that makes sense? Like how much, yeah. I mean, in how much massaging do you have to do behind the scenes to get things to connect? And do you have your own kind of standard way of trying to do that? Or is it very case by case in each integration, in, in each integration case? I'm repeating a lot of words in that sentence. But. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> yeah. You know, we're uh, integration of integrations. Um, yeah. the, the, uh, you know, I think there's kind of two different uh, uh, ways to talk about that. You know, I think the first one is, is kind of like who does the work? You know, mm. so we originally started or really, you know, started with just me and then we added a, a couple of people and then a few more. Um, but uh, I think, you know, we have 660 some odd, you know, individual services on the platform today. Uh, and the first, I think about 50 or 60 of those were actually built in house. Uh, and mm -hmm. that was kind of during that golden age of open APIs. So things yeah. like Twitter and Facebook and Dropbox. Uh, I think we use like Twilio for SMS and phone yep. call. Um, yep. And uh, we reached critical mass in terms of just number of other services, number of users, 
to then, you know, uh, open up a platform and say, hey, if, if you're a developer and you have a service or an API, you can plug that in. So that was kind of the first kind of pushing the work to others. And that's really the only scalable way to do that. Uh, and then that evolved into, okay, well, there's value there. So if you're a developer, not only should you do that work, but uh, there's, you know, some price tag associated with that. Uh, and, and we try to keep that really low for people that just want to be on the platform and, and find ways to, to charge on a per user basis for folks uh, that want to do much more uh, businesses and brands. So that's kind of one way to think about it. I think the other way, you know, and this is something we actually got right um, kind of from day one. Uh, and we've had to be really disciplined about it. But uh, we believe that there was, you know, a very common set of primitives, if you will, for how APIs can be expressed. Not dissimilar from like HTTP verbs, you know, post, put, get, delete, that kind of thing. Uh, and those, you know, three primitives, we started with two, triggers and actions. And we've since added a third one called queries. So mm -hmm. triggers are basically events, changes in state. Yeah. You know, somebody rings your doorbell, uh, somebody mentions you on Twitter, so on and so forth. Uh, actions are essentially posts. You're, you are changing state. You are turning on the lights or you're saving a, fo uh, a, a photo to Dropbox. And queries are, are just questions and answers. You know, I want to know, uh, is it raining now in this zip code or, you know, yeah. Uh, and so we believe that any API can be expressed. So any service, any functionality, any product can be expressed uh, in some combination of those three things. Uh, and those three things are then, you know, interchangeable. You can take data from the trigger or queries and send those to the actions. And, uh, you know, so like it, it's that kind of simplification down to just those three key elements that actually make, if possible, uh, and make all the future things that we believe we can build or others could build on the platform possible. Uh, so whether you're looking to, you know, turn on an air conditioner, start a car or save a photo in a cloud storage service, well, those are all actions. <laughs> and if you know how to call one action, it's not that different from calling the next. So actually now this is giving me a nice in, I'm, I'm looking at the, um, the developer documentation at the moment. And, oh, great. Um, you found it. We need, we need to make that a lot easier to find and uh, a lot more fun to read. So that's some work <laughs> to do. It's not bad. Um, we, we've got work to do. So I guess there's a few questions here. Um, how much... Because there's, there's always, there's a lot of bits that come to play here. There's obviously the various services that someone wants to connect. Then there's IFT, and then there's what the, the developer needs to do to make those work together. Mm -hmm. um, and <laughs> I'm not sure if this is, a, this is a question with an answer or not, but how, how, much of, how much work is there in each of those? Like how much does a developer need to do? How much do you give them? Mm -hmm. Or is it still very much service dependent? Yeah, it's um, it is really dependent on where they are in the development of their own service. So mm -hmm. if we're just talking about plugging a service into the IF platform, um, you know, the kind of base requirements are having some API, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and, and most people that have built a mobile app or, you know, and a lot of websites today are really still, you know, kind of based on web APIs 
more so than your traditional server request send a web page. Um, so pretty much everybody that's building a, a modern internet service of some sort, there's an API involved. Um, and it doesn't have to be like a public API or platforms as long as they're just an API. And there's some authentication layer. Uh, and, you know, we you know, mostly, I think, support OAuth 2 and all its, mm -hmm, you know, mm -hmm. infinite flavors. Uh, but we support a couple other ways to do it as well. Because, you know, especially if that service, you know, if you're, if you're just building a service around like, like our uh, transportation system in, in San Francisco Bay Area is called SF BART. Uh, if you're just building a service for SFBART, you know, you don't really need to authenticate, uh, uh, at least for that to be useful. Yep. Most people don't have a BART account uh, as much as they want to know when the train that they take or the thing that they hop on every morning is it late or something like that. So yeah. you don't have to authenticate that. But, you know, if it's your Dropbox account or your Twitter account yeah. or your yeah. connected doorbell account, you need to authenticate. Uh, and so that's a, a really kind of key part of it. And that still, uh, I think, remains a little bit of a barrier uh, for some <laughs> folks, you know, because it's not easy to build those things or get those things right. Although with the OAuth 2 standardization, there's a whole lot of libraries and ways that people can kind of just bolt that on. Um, but if you have those things, which most modern services do, and, and if you're using frameworks like Node or Rails, like there's all, probably infinite ways that people have made that much easier and those are kind of the key ingredients. You should be able to there just in a matter of a couple of days, really. And a lot of that's just kind of testing and figuring out exactly what you want to do with it. You can plug it all into IFT and have, have a service ready to go. So that's so the, like the, registering the service part, but then there's the, like connecting the service part, which is yeah. the next step. And, and so IFT itself is, it's a series of APIs itself. It's not an SDK or anything like that. You can basically just use whatever you want to generate um, API calls. Yeah, so to, think of it as if we, we have a, a protocol uh, and yeah. we say, okay, we, your API for a trigger needs to look and behave like this. And the actual service building is, is kind of a test-driven, you know, our pseudo test-driven thing where you start with just sending us your kind of you know, base uh, URL. Like where, mm -hmm. where are all your API endpoints going to be found? You just basically copy and paste that in. Uh, and then from there, you run a test. Okay, here's here's what needs to be built next. It looks like you're missing authentication and you're missing, you know, you said you had two triggers, but we only found one, you know, so there's kind of a, a checklist once you have kind of a base URL uh, that points to your API. Okay. And is this mostly uh, developers at a particular service or is it also just people creating something they wanted as well or a bit of both? Uh, it's a little bit of both. Uh, and so if, if you just wanted to, to plug in a service uh, and not publish it, like not have other people use that service, you can do that for free. You can just kind of hop in uh, okay. and, and get started and, and you, you know, the, the real gate is when you actually publish it and make it available for other users or other developers. Yeah. Um, and that's where it's, it's, in fact, I think it's almost entirely, if not entirely, developers that have some very close relationship or are, are employed at uh, the service itself. So we, we kind of learned a little bit from the App Store and some other platforms yep. 
uh, that it, it gets pretty complicated when you have somebody that doesn't work at Facebook build the Facebook thing. <laughs> you know, you know, most businesses don't appreciate that. And I also think it, it erodes trust, you know, part of yeah. uh, that recognizability of one brand or another is that they stand behind it. The actual company does. It's not just some random person off the street. Or and does, the street. Does, if, does if there's a company have to pursue pursue other companies to make those or is it somewhat back and forth over them wanting to support it or <laughs> yeah I mean, I mean what we what we've made available this year um and you know our business has evolved quite a bit uh mm. and yeah we've made some mistakes you know uh we've, we've always tried to do right by both individuals and businesses as as we've evolved um, we think we've kind of got it all figured out now, but we've said that before. Uh, and this year, what we what we launched was our uh, developer plan. Um, yep. And think of that as a very low cost. In fact, kind of a negligible cost. If you have any type of startup or business, it's $199 a year. It's kind of like the Apple developer fee. It's like, are you serious? Yeah. Are, are you willing to kind of put your name behind this? Um and that also kind of helps pay for some of the review process that, that yep. we help people go through. Um, and uh, we launched that, I think, uh, in the first three or four months this year. And um, we've since had, I think, 170, 180 folks sign up, plop down a credit card. Uh, uh, and we're just now starting to see uh, a, a critical mass of those services get out the door where we're launching four or five new things each week. Uh, and a lot of those are you know small startups, companies that... Perhaps not everybody has heard of, uh, and both the small companies and large ones uh, now primarily find us. Um, uh, I think we've been able to build both the brand and the the, the user base uh, to the point where you know we're no longer kind of knocking on doors to say, "Hey, we'd love to work with you." Uh, people are finding us, and, and we're really grateful for that. Um, that. That's and then that's you know part of our business is actually acknowledging that. Reaching that critical mass is really hard, if not impossible, depending on, you know, really your your market share and the importance of that market. Uh, the example I love to give is, you know, I think of uh, like the car companies as these massive, you know, GM, Ford, Toyota, these massive businesses. Um, but when you think about uh, market share, uh, and this may change over the last couple of years, but uh, the company with the largest market share in any given market is Toyota in Japan. And mm. they've got 20% of the market. <laughs> and that's the largest market share that any one auto manufacturer has in any given major market. So if you're a, you know, a car manufacturer, it's near impossible to reach the critical mass to actually build a successful developer platform and get people coming to you to build for that platform. Uh, and that's one of the problems that we really want to help brands solve mm -hmm. is, you know, whether you're a car manufacturer or home insurance provider, you know, how do you continue to focus on what you do best and worry less about, oh, how do we make this a developer platform, make this mm -hmm. something that other people can build for uh, if they can work ah. with it and get that, that same, you know, since okay. we've reached that critical mass, can they work with us to, to bridge that gap? So it's actually going down that path of providing a developer platform for people, not just a connector, but actually entering that market of some of these other developer platform, more more explicit developer platform companies. 
Is yeah, that yeah. a kind of long-term? Yeah, so I mean, I think about it, and this is sometimes this can confuse folks because you kind of have to think a little bit more abstractly. Like what we do is very much like what Stripe does. Mm-hmm. Uh, if Stripe kind of abstracts away the integrations that someone that wants to, to accept payments would have to make without Stripe, yeah. we abstract away those same types of integrations, but across a much broader range of services. Um, so you're kind of integrating once, to then take advantage of you know 660 and growing number of other integrations and and that's not just the integrations that your users that go to ift kind of cobble together on their own uh the the real business for us is actually helping those brands create integrations and then offer them to their customers in the same user experiences that they've already built you know like so for example like irobot has an integration sections in their app and they integrate with five or six different services. I think August Lights and Life360 and things like that, powered by IF. Uh, but they're yeah. not presented as iRobot works with IF. They're presented as iRobot works with August. Um, uh, another great example would be uh, like a, a power and electric company in Oklahoma called OG&E. Uh, they send all of their customers who are, you know, basically think everybody pays Everybody pays for electricity somewhere, you know, so we're all electricity customers, but their customers get an email uh, that says, hey, if you have one of these branded uh, connected thermostats and you're willing to give us, the power company, access to that thermostat to make small Mm -hmm. adjustments over time, you'll save this much money on your uh, uh, electricity bill. Um, And that, you know, to that end user it just looks like any other integration, but we've helped them build that in a yeah. way where they don't have to manage yeah. every single connected thermostat that's on the market today. And that is definitely something I have seen. I think we have some lights here that have have uh, if are powered. <laughs> oh, awesome! Great. Um, so, and then recently you launched uh, the Pro Individual Plan in the past couple of months. Mm-hmm. Um, mm-hmm. So I guess the question there is, um, why now? Um, what made you get to that decision? And you've also, for the current, I'm not sure for how long, you have this set your price mm-hmm. model, which is interesting. Yeah. Um, yeah, what was the thought process behind that too? So sort of three questions in one there. <laughs> sure, sure. Uh, yeah, so you know, we launched Pro, I think it was about a month ago now. Um, we've been really happy with, uh, uh, how people have, have received it. Um, you know, we now have over 130,000, you know, paying pro subscribers. So, uh, that for us is, you know, even beyond any of the goal, internal goals that we set. So we're very happy with that. You know, the goal wasn't to just force everybody to pay, you know, we've got mm. uh, over 23 million users. We still mm. believe the vast majority of the value that most users will get from it doesn't require that they become a pro or, or pay. Mm-hmm. But there was this subset, you know, actually two or three million plus users uh, that it was very clear by what they were trying to do with it uh, that they were eager to build something very custom. Um, yeah. And, you know, from day one, uh, we were having uh, uh, requests, and I think most recently uh, up to 20 or 30 people a day saying, Okay, if this and that, I get it. What about and that and that and if this or these? You know, it's just like yeah, you know, yeah. and and 
And it's really tough because you look at that, especially as an engineer, and you say, well, yeah, that it's all possible. And I can see how you could build some really cool stuff with that. Uh, but it also, it, you know, up until this year, frankly, it felt like uh, there was a slippery slope there uh, that we could end up making the tool and the service more complex mm. and harder to use to serve uh, minority uh, yep. of the actual yep. user base. Um, and so as our business with brands actually began to really work uh, uh, here over the last year or so, uh, it became clear that we were going to get sucked into doing more and more things specifically to support those customers. And because we didn't have, uh, you know, the typical customer relationship with our users, um, you know, we, we weren't uh, uh, being asked to do anything that we, we wouldn't actually be proud of or anything like yep. that. Yep. Uh, but it just was clear that there was a conflict there. Uh, and if you just look at it from, you know, where, you know, where do we deploy uh, people internally to focus on, you know, and it, they, they were getting pulled further and further towards the brands uh, because they were paying customers. And if we were going to really try to support users uh, really independently of brands and build some of the features and things that they wanted to see that maybe brands don't particularly care one way or the other about, uh, then this was really a, a clear and easy way to do that uh, and to kind of create that same relationship, customer relationship, uh, with individuals as well. And uh, I, you know, I'm really excited about it because already internally, uh, it's a whole lot easier to pay a lot more attention to what a paying customer is saying. If they're saying, mm. I'm unhappy with this, or I want to see this, this done differently or better, um, we're just going to be more likely to listen. It's not like we didn't care before, <laughs> but it, you know, it was kind of easy to justify, uh, we'll get to that later, or, you know, maybe next year. Uh, but now um, it's kind of like a it's a vote. Uh, it's people voting with dollars. And I think uh, there's all kinds of downsides to that. I'm not some like crazy, you know, uh, capitalists, you know, uh, only. Uh, but, you know, it's a relationship that has very clear rules. We either provide a service that people like and are willing to pay for or they go elsewhere. It is this set your price. Was that I don't know. Was that. <laughs> was that um, a gamble for marketing? Was it a way to maybe see what people were willing to pay? Um, and, and I suppose the other question is, how long will you do that for? You've already mentioned 130000 yeah. which is a reasonable amount. But um, is there an element of thinking maybe we should have set a fixed price and we could have done better? <laughs> so well, what's, what's I- the thing? Yeah. A, a couple different things, actually. Um, uh, so I think the first one, well, actually, let me make sure I get the the, the actual details of what we're doing here uh, clear. Yeah. So, you know, the, the set your own price offer uh, actually expires at the end of this month. Um, okay. So October <laughs> 31st. Uh, and then on November 1st, it will become a fixed price of $3.99 per month. Uh, and okay. we'll probably offer uh, some ways to pay annually with a discount and some other things like that. That's still uh, quite forward. low for, for yeah. these sorts of service. So, yeah. yeah. And then, and, you know, in fact, uh, we uh, frankly didn't know what to charge. Uh, mm. And in fact, I, almost any business uh, that isn't yet fully scaled or doesn't have a lot of other competition uh, is lying to you if they tell you they know exactly what to charge. Pricing oh, no. I've is, worked in test companies. I know how yeah. much thought goes into it. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Pricing is art, art 
in science, you know, uh, and yeah. like, we, we really didn't know. Uh, we aspired to build something that we thought could be worth, you know, $9.99, $8 a month. Uh, we have some, I think, adjacent and, in, in, you know, some consider competitive services that even start at $20 a month. Um, and so we felt like, okay, there's, there's maybe the potential that people are, are going to be willing to pay for that. But we're also in this like global pandemic, really kind of tricky time. And yeah. uh, frankly, yeah. we were, uh, we were going to be, uh, doing some things, uh, that we kind of were apprehensive about cause we were going to limit some things that users were doing. And in some cases, users that had been with us for 10 years and, uh, we, you know, we, it wasn't, we didn't want it to be a punishment and we wanted to kind of give those users something that not everybody else would get. Uh, but also at the same time, as we, we discussed it internally, we didn't want to just lock them in and say, well, because you're doing it for free, it's free for you forever. We felt like if we could get the price low enough or at least give them the option to kind of choose their price, there'd be enough of folks that would, you know, elect to do that. And obviously there's also folks that, you know, went and got their pitchfork and were pretty upset. And then that's totally understandable. Um, but uh, uh, what we've said so far has been uh, very successful and it helped us figure out what that base price should yeah. be at three ninety nine. dollars yeah. um, uh, And, you know, again, we want to, we want to deliver something that's uh, some multiple more valuable than that over time. Um, and uh, we're going to keep plugging away at it, but it's, it's uh, been a great kind of experiment so far. Uh, even though it was a lot of extra work, both to communicate it and to, to build it that way. Um, but it, it's really worked out. It's helped us, you know, do right by people that have been, yeah. been with the platform for a long time and also kind of yeah. figure out, well, what are people willing to pay for what we're offering today? Yeah. Yeah. Okay. Sort of final question before I have my wrap up question mm-hmm. would be, you already alluded a little bit to there that this, this, this sort of process, let's call it, broadly process automation space is is getting busier i think probably with the advent of more and more <laughs> open apis and we use the we use the term open api to mean a, a standard not necessarily an open api mm-hmm. um there's a there's quite a lot of uh similarish platforms now for business for consumers for, for various things i would probably say that if it was one of the first maybe or at least one of the first that people know um reasonably well how do you keep um how do you keep competitive with those and decide what to change what not to change uh and you know you're now getting competition from some relatively large brands as well doing some similar things as well, who can sometimes offer them for free and stuff like that because they're part of just a mm-hmm. general um, package. So how do you make sure that you remain competitive and, and what do you think it is that IFT offers over that is its unique its unique point? Yeah, I think um, you could kind of rattle off all kinds of different features mm. or things that we build. Um, and that's you know all, you know always kind of the easiest thing that people and people understand that. Uh, but I firmly believe that um, in any competitive scenario, it really gets back to kind of like you know core values. You know what what really makes an organization and the people behind it and the brand and the way people interpret that brand different than others. 
And then that then manifests itself down the line in different features or products and things like that. And I think the thing that IFT does that is very different than a lot of those other, you know, like you alluded to other bigger players getting into the space, uh, other other kind of folks that are, are now coming in, which is good. I think competition is, is mm-hmm. means we're onto something. Um, uh, is that we believe that that being neutral uh, is really really important to what mm-hmm. we do, um, and the incentives just aren't there. You know the you know the biggest value that platforms have uh, driven for other businesses in the past uh, is is lock in. Uh, and it's not necessarily because businesses are evil or it just like just makes good business sense. You know, when you think about the business that Microsoft built around Windows, it largely did that in a way that a lot of people would say is either monopolistic or but it also was really good. Like you, you couldn't have had the, the kind of personal computing revolution uh, without some singular platform that everybody kind of jumped onto. Uh, but it also kind of locked them in with a set of customers and users for decades. Uh, <laughs> huh. And that, that same thing, you know, iOS, very similar. It's, it's actually almost, uh, I think, kind of uh, uh, amazing that we have these two very competitive platforms, Android and iOS, uh, that have, you know, stuck around. You don't think any of them is, you know, you don't think of like who's going to win, Android or iOS. It's like, no, there's just going to be two. Um, the crazy thing is you have to bear in mind that IFT is about as old as both of those. So, <laughs> yeah, oh, yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so, but, but, but anyways, I think uh, uh, the point though is, is that almost all those platforms I just mentioned, anybody that's building a platform around their business is out of the gate, non-neutral. Uh, mm. They have some other stake in it, and that doesn't mean they're bad actors or they're you know they're necessarily doing something bad. Uh, as much as I think there's a lot of downside there, and there's a lot of limitations uh, as well. Uh, and so the way we approach it, our business is the platform. <laughs> our business mm. is connecting other things. You know, we wouldn't have a business if we weren't connecting these other things. Uh, you know, those those things have to exist. You know, we're just kind of the, the connections, not the nodes in the network. Mm-hmm. And so that allows us to take a neutral stance and say, you know, I think very truthfully, we want to work with everybody, no matter what your business is or what, you know, what you do. Uh, we think it's better if it works with it and thus works with everything else that works with it. Uh, and I think that's really powerful. Uh, and that kind of then plays itself out in all kinds of different ways uh, over time. Um, but I think it will allow us to offer not just a competitive service, but something that's very unique in the market uh, that other businesses that aren't just, you know, kind of just a platform, but are something plus a platform can't replicate. So the final question I always like to ask, I mean, you've just obviously been through a fairly large announcement. Um, as much as you can reveal, what's the plan for the next six months to a year? Well, I, now now that Pro is uh, a success for us, we we want to keep investing in that. Um, uh, we've heard folks loud and clear. In fact, just this week, we sent out a, a survey to to some of those users. They're just kind of asking, what do they want to see next? Uh, things mm-hmm. like supporting multiple accounts, uh, you know, uh, easier ways in which they can build these more powerful applets. Things like delayed actions, you know, mm-hmm. so things that maybe turn on or off after ten or fifteen minutes. I mean, I think the list is. And now at 40 or 50 different 
uh, you know, big and small things. So we're, we're definitely doing those things. Uh, in fact, some of those are already in progress. We're going to support uh, multiples of the same action uh, here soon, I think, within the week. That's something that we heard from folks. Mm-hmm. And actually, it's something that we, we didn't really anticipate. You know, people wanted to, to basically, you know, turn on the light, but turn on two different lights or, you know, post two yep. different tweets yep, or something yep, like yep, that. Yep, 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 um, yep. And uh, uh, so that that's clear. Um, the other thing we're doing is, you know, uh, doubling down on, you know, the part of our business that really has uh, uh, the potential to scale and is, is, is really exciting for us is these integrations that really don't show up on IFT or are, aren't kind of obviously available just going to IFT. You can still find them, um, but they're, they're much more available to users within the context of the product they already have. So I yep. mentioned that example with like Oklahoma Gas and Electric. You get an email yeah. from Oklahoma Gas and Electric that says, yeah. you know, click here to connect your thermostat. Uh, and I think that has not only the potential to reach a much broader audience, but to create a whole lot more value uh, for the, the brands that work with IFT yeah. than just plugging in their API. Uh, and so yeah. making that development process a lot easier, uh, adding additional SDKs. We have iOS and Android today, uh, but adding some other ones, whether that's React Native or better better SDKs for people that just want to use URLs uh, yeah. instead of kind of native SDKs. Um, there's just a huge laundry list there. Uh, and the more that we can do to help brands think about managing or maintaining or adding new integrations over time, and there's just all kinds of kind of things that we need to do either in addition to what we do today or better, because uh, that's kind of a never ending process. Uh, the more successful our, our business will be. So there's just kind of endless, endless work to do there. Um, but we've been really thrilled with uh, the 20 to 30 some odd customers that have adopted those additional APIs and SDKs so far today. And they're seeing, in some cases, they're seeing right out of the gate, uh, five or 10x increase in the daily number of users that are enabling an integration. And it mm-hmm. you know, maybe it's obvious because those users are you know, finding it without having to download IFT or sign up for an IFT account. Um, but those are things that, that really get us excited. That was my interview with Lyndon Tibbetts of IFT. I hope you enjoyed that. I have a few things to share with you um, that I've been up to and, and new things to share. Um, so here's my lovely website. Still tweaking the layout and things. It's amazing. I went on a creative writing retreat about a month ago and did a lot of stuff. And it feels like feels like that was ages ago. And I've done absolutely nothing since, which is mostly true, unfortunately. Um, let's have a look. What do I want to share mostly? Yeah, you could still sign up for my office hours for documentation work. I'm tweaking the setup for those a little bit in an effort to make them more public to people. Alongside that, I'm going to do some more general streaming soon. Not the kind of uh, prescriptive streaming I've been doing with the potted sort of episodes, but just what I'm working on, more traditional sort of streaming. That said, um, I finished up the Alone Against the Flames uh, solo scenario for Call of Cthulhu. So you can watch the three parts there on my solo adventurer stream. Um, I also finished up a post for Humanitech covering, um, reporting back on a hackathon they did recently. And uh, I'm not sure if I mentioned this in the last episode or not, but I did uh, the expose covering Code Lobster. I'm taking a break from the expose this week just because I had a lot of interviews to do. 
But um, uh, the day after this goes out on Thursday, the let me check the date. Thursday, the twenty ninth, I will be doing Soul Adventurer and a new oh, a classic interactive fiction piece. So you can have a look at that. Go along to my YouTube channels, my Twitch channels, and you can find those details. Um, one other thing to mention that is not actually here. I should get the link up. Uh, it covers nicely what I was talking about with the robot piece. The Sustain Ethics Working Group, which is a, is a Sustain is a group of working groups for open source projects, and the Ethical Source uh, Group. We have started a new podcast together. Now, this is a very, very rudimentary landing page right now. Still perfecting a lot of that. But it's the Ethics in Open Source podcast. And we did our first um, preview episode, as you can see here, currently just on anchor.fm slash ethics in open source. But there'll be more details coming there very soon. That was released just a couple of days ago, where the hosts and some of the producers behind the shows, behind the show, we talk about um, what we're aiming to do with the show and um, what our uh, ideas and agendas are for the coming episodes, I guess. So if that's a subject that interests you, it's something I've actually been looking to get around to doing for a long time. I started this book last year, kind of went on pause for 2020 for various reasons. Um, But this podcast is a little bit of a manifestation of those thoughts in my mind anyway. I'm mostly not going to be a host of the show. I'm mostly going to help produce it, but I am a host on this episode and what you don't hear in the outtakes is me fumbling a lot of people's names. Very embarrassing. <laughs> but that's sometimes the way it is. Um, and that's another thing to have a look at. Um, I'll be recording um, another episode of the Stories About People podcast um, in the next couple of weeks and editing together episode three of the Board Game Jerk podcast. So that's a whole bunch of things there. Event-wise, they're not on my website, but I will be doing uh, two online talks soon at Write the Docs Australia and also for API the Docs in December. So both of these coming in December, but the nature of things, I can start recording those soon. So that is basically it for the episode, mostly just focusing on the interview. If you enjoyed what you heard or saw or read in the newsletter form, please share, subscribe, um, leave a comment. Uh, Always lovely to hear feedback from you. You can find details at christianchiller.com. And the other links you can see at the bottom of my video. And until next time, thank you very much for joining me. Thank you.